What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories this week on This Week in FCPA, episode 212. Tom takes an in-depth dive into the Novartis FCPA and fraud settlements. Why do you need a plan for distributors under the FCPA? Bill Steinman opines in the FCPA blog. Alexion settles FCPA enforcement action. Dick Kasson breaks the story in the FCPA blog. Banks facing increased compliance risks, Menke's son and the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Also from the Wall Street Journal, DOJ 2020 update to evaluation of corporate compliance programs with a new emphasis on middle management. How badly did EY botch the Wirecard audit? Michael Rappaport guest posts on Francine McKenna's The Dig. On July 1st, the CCPA went live. Were you ready? Jessica Wilburn on Navix Global's Ethics Matters blog. And finally, what is the role of compliance in the future of work? Ned Amedev comments in the CCI Corporate Compliance Insight. All this and audio offerings from Tom Fox on This Week on the FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, along with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 212 for the week ending, July 3rd, 2020, the happy July 4th edition. As President Trump allows Russia to pay bounties to the Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers, I am once again self-isolating. Uh, Jay is uh, living in California, where the status is unclear at this point. But we have a special July 4th podcast edition for you. Uh, we are recording this on uh, Thursday, July 2nd. And we're going to look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories uh, that caught our collective eyes over the past week. What say you, Jay? I say I'm glad I'm not working at Novartis. Well, and that really leads into the first, um, I guess, segment, because uh, we had uh, what I thought was a major FCPA settlement until late last night, Jay, when we had a False Claims Act uh, settlement um, uh, which dwarfed the FCPA settlement. So we'll start with the FCPA settlement, uh, $345 million paid to the Department of Justice and SEC for viol- criminal violations of the FCPA by Novartis in Greece. Um, it's uh, subsidiary Alcon, also criminally charged for its actions in Vietnam and other countries in Asia, an SEC enforcement action for Novartis's actions in China, uh, an incredible amount of corruption over a large number of years. Uh, the uh, Novartis was a recidivist, having settled an SEC FCPA action in 2016. So we had the anomaly of a company who uh, either didn't discover a huge amount of corruption after in investigating their first FCPA settlement or knew about it and hid it. We don't know the answer to that because they did not self-disclose the conduct. 
so they can get self-disclosure credit. I say all that now is only introducing the next action, which hit last night. Novartis agreed to pay $678 million for corruption, not outside the United States, but inside the United States. In just a stunning announcement, uh, the um, Western District of, um, or excuse me, the uh, U.S. Attorney, acting U.S. Attorney, let's note, for uh, the Southern District of New York. Uh, the Sovereign District of New York. Sovereign District of New York. Uh, Novartis amount uh, admitted to uh, illegal conduct around uh, bribery and corruption around doctors in the United States. And this was just a stunning uh, settlement. First of all, obviously, the amount, $678 million. Um, uh, the conduct Novartis engaged in basically was to pay doctors to prescribe their drugs. They paid honoraria for speeches. They paid honoraria where speeches were not made. They paid doctors uh, lavish meals, uh, even listed some of the places that uh, no doubt um, Mr. and Mrs. Monitor frequent uh, on their sojourns across the United States. Uh, they paid uh, doctors to have meals together. They paid doctors uh, just paid and paid and paid and paid and paid and paid and paid. So um, that's a lot of payments, though, to get to a $678 million, a huge uh, corrupt, uh, set of corruption. You, uh, you have to uh, just wonder uh, what was the culture at the company, and frankly, how did they turn it around? Nevertheless, um, just a stunning development and uh, dwarfing the FCPA settlement, coming in at a total now of corruption settlements announced in the past week of just over $1 billion. Um, Several of us did deep dives into the settlement. Uh, We have to start with, of course, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, who who broke the commentariat uh, story uh, last Saturday on radical compliance. I weighed in on a five-part series uh, this week and the end of last week where I took a deep dive into it. Mike Volkoff also took a deep dive into it. Matt and I uh, checked it out on compliance into the weeds. Uh, and now we have the uh, the U.S. portion of this settlement. So uh, kudos to the – I thought the lawyers who handled the um, FCPA case did a stunning job. Uh, that was led by Chuck Taras and James Kukios over at MoFo. And after reading the uh, domestic corruption, I have to say um, I'm only more impressed. And I think we now have to seriously consider why Novartis hired Michael Cohen, not try to. They hired Michael Cohen. It's pretty clear to me uh, one of the reasons was this massive corruption case. But also it really speaks to the culture of Novartis. Um, so uh, obviously a corrupt culture, obviously uh, exactly from the top and management would allow this uh, GC and the uh, CEO were in on hiring Cohen. And I think that they're, they're now both gone. So the culture has changed, but uh, clearly Novartis was not interested in um, playing by not only the U S rules, but its own rule because they noted in the U S corruption settlement that Novartis had a relatively, uh, low amount that they, uh, could spend on doctors of 125 per person set by Novartis compliance policy. So, uh, that was uh, blasted through because, uh, they had dinners of, uh, 500 to a thousand per person. So, um, just a stunning, um, set of developments, a lot to, uh, digest, 
lots of different bribery schemes, a couple we had not really seen before. Uh, one in Korea where uh, doctors were paid for non-existent medical journal articles and the payment were through the medical journal staff themselves. Uh, a second was a medical study where doctors were paid for being a part of what appeared to be a legitimate medical study called a phase four study, uh, but the information was useless, and the real reason was just a way to funnel money to uh, doctors. Um, key influencers were paid. I would note for the record, Jay, you and I are not paid. Um so, uh, you know, key influencers uh, wake up out there. Um, and uh, the uh, most interesting bribery scheme, I think at the end of the day, though, though, Jay, was once again what could have appeared to be a legitimate business opportunity, which was leasing of product and supplies to Chinese hospitals with an extended payment plan. And one might think that this is, uh, you know, something that's uh, positive. Certainly uh, delivery of healthcare services is facilitated by products and supplies. Uh, people in healthcare want those products and supplies and need them to deliver healthcare services. But it turned out that these were just gifts to hospitals and other healthcare providers to get them to prescribe uh, Novartis products. They never uh, signed lease agreements in many instances. The products and supplies disappeared. Uh, there was no comprehensive list. There was no comprehensive set of contracts. Uh, Novartis at one point tried to audit the equipment. They couldn't find it. So it was pretty clearly um, a problem. Uh, but how it doubled down on Novartis was it... it they recorded it as lease payments on their books and records, and uh, that money, of course, was never there. So they had to reserve another $50 million uh, to take a hit for that program. So lots of different bribery schemes. Uh, the recidivism cannot be overlooked. Uh, I tried to calculate what I thought um, it cost Novartis for being a recidivist. The closest I got was uh, somewhere in the range of $90 million. So that's a pretty expensive lesson, but it's a lesson that every compliance officer needs to learn and hopefully will not cost you 90 because you will not be a recidivist. And then um, the interesting thing, I tried to take the information provided in the FCPA settlement, Jay, and do data analytics and show how uh, data could be utilized by the compliance professional to not only uh, detect but prevent such actions going forward. So a lot to digest, a lot to look at. Is there anything that kind of stuck out to you or struck you as new or unusual or, or a key lesson for the compliance professional? Well, I, I think the last point that you just brought up, you and Matt really uh, took a deep dive in into the weeds. And I think it's um, quite instructive that recently we had the DOJ uh, update to the evaluation in 2020. And we talked a lot about how you can use your data analysis. And I think the conversation that you and uh, Matt uh, really underscores how important it is in a matter like this uh, brings up just a couple opportunities where the data was there and, and the AI could have been leveraged to uh, ring, ring a warning bell. So uh, great work to you and all the commentators. We link to them all in the show notes. Uh, next up, first of two from the FCPA blog, uh, why you need a plan for distributors under the FCPA. This comes to us from uh, senior editor Bill Steinman. And in a prior post last week, 
he contends that the SEC is on an internal controls rampage involving the way that issuers, public companies, establish and manage relationships with third parties, particularly distributors and resellers. The SEC does not appear to draw a distinction between distributors and resellers, but there are likely several reasons they will not do so. First, there are no universally accepted definitions to these terms. Second, even if you can draw a distinction between distributors and resellers, the distinction is likely irrelevant under the FCPA. While there are meaningful differences between these relationships from a business perspective, there is nothing in the plain language of the FCPA that suggests that these relationships should be treated differently. So let's start with the FCPA's third-party provision. The plain language of the provision imposes liability for bribes perpetrated by any person, and it does not draw a distinction between a distributor or a reseller. Third in this list, the DOJ and the SEC have made their views abundantly clear in the resource guide. Finally, Bill turns, returns to his core premise that the SEC is on an internal control rampage. We can debate whether the FCPA's third-party provision creates liability for the reseller who occasionally purchases pro- products for resale, but ultimately doesn't matter. What then should companies do to address the SEC's focus on the distributor and resellers. First and foremost, understand your route to market. If it's multiple tiers of distributors and resellers stand between you and a government customer, then ascertain their identities and conduct risk-appropriate due diligence. Second, ensure your organization has built the sound business justification for the size of the third-party discount. And third, if your organization will permit deviations from standard discount rates, for individual third parties or transactions, ensure you understand and thoroughly document why it's necessary. If the business folks say there's substantial competition for a particular transaction, ask them to identify the competition and explain why their pricing is better than yours. Ultimately, the SEC is not shy about staking out an aggressive position on whether a company third parties contracts are satisfactory. Moreover, the SEC is taking an undeniable need lead in FCPA enforcement against businesses. Over the last five years, only one year, 2017, saw more DOJ enforcement actions than SEC actions. There were significantly more SEC actions, indeed, over the last five years. SEC enforcement actions have exceeded DOJ by a factor of one and a half to one. And in the current environment, Bill believes that companies who ignore the risk posed by distributors or the one-off occasional reseller should do so at their own peril. So, Jay, we actually had another FCPA settlement this week, albeit somewhat smaller than Novartis. Alexion Pharmaceuticals uh, paid uh, $21.4 million to the SEC to resolve FCPA offenses. The uh, bribery schemes were a little more pedestrian here. Uh, there were payments to government officials and doctors at state-connected and state-owned hospitals to promote the use of its drugs. Consulting fees were paid, along with purported expense reimbursements. The uh, interesting thing is, uh, in many ways, Jay, I find these smaller SEC FCPA enforcement actions more instructive because they really go into the weeds, and so you're able to garner some some pretty detailed uh, lessons learned, and they really talked about the recordation of the payments. So um, 
one note was that there were um, a large number of uh, kind of others, quote, other fees, end quote, used in the recordation of payments. And that's always a red flag going forward. So um, lot to, uh, or not, not a lot, but I thought some, some interesting lessons that uh, I'll be talking about in some blog posts next week. But uh, two FCC, or excuse me, two FCPA cases over a one-week period, that's something that uh, we really hadn't seen uh, too much of this year. So next up, uh, first of two from the Wall Street Journal. This comes from the Risk and Compliance Journal from our friend Menke Sun. Banks face increasing compliance risks as the Office of Controller of the Currency. The coronavirus pandemic has forced some financial institutions to reduce staff or reassign personnel at a time when applications for government relief programs are flooding in, heightening banks' compliance risks, says the Office of Controller of Currency. The OCC, which supervises and regulates banks and savings associations, said in a report Monday that it would consider the impact of pandemic-related challenges on compliance as it conducts examinations and weighs reinforcement. The pandemic could create challenges for financial institutions to abide by a host of policies, procedures, and requirements, ranging from data privacy and fair lending efforts to combat money laundering. Short application processing needs for relief programs such as the so-called CARES Act, which included direct aid ranging from forgivable business loans to cash payments for households, only elevate the risk, especially if understaffed banks can't process promptly, says the OCC. Some banks participating in the federal stimulus program for small businesses have expressed concerns that they could end up in regulatory or legal crosshairs down the road for approving shoddy loans because they let certain due diligence slide in an effort to disperse these funds in a timely manner. The OCC, like other regulatory agencies, said it recognizes that there may be delays in banks' compliance with AML and sanctions requirements due to the pandemic, and that it is taking these circumstances into consideration in compliance examinations. Finally, the OCC said banks need to remain diligent to ensure that they are complying with consumer protection and fair lending laws when processing new or modified loans and working with consumers affected by the pandemic. Jay, we had uh, another article from the Wall Street Journal, and this one deals with the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance documents. And it had a couple of interesting points. Uh, Dylan Tokar and Jack Hagel reporting on the Risk and Compliance Journal. And uh, we had some quotes from some folks we typically don't see. Uh, first was Sally Malloy, who is the, uh, I believe, the head of the unit within the Department of Justice who rewrote the evaluation, or I should say amended it. Um, the second is we have April Oliver, Senior VP and Associate General Counsel at Salesforce, who heads the company's uh, global ethics and integrity, uh, talking about data. But the thing I'd like to focus on, Jay, was a couple of points. One was, uh, it's not a direct quote, but a paraphrase from Sally Malloy. And she said that the revision was intended to reflect the experience of prosecutors and feedback from the private sector. Um, I found that really interesting because it, I think, encapsulates how the DOJ's thinking has evolved in the, I guess now, 12 or 13 years I've been playing in this space, but also how... um, 
not simply the DOJ's thinking has evolved, but the process by which that evolution occurs. And that process is they bring an enforcement action, companies before they come before them, they present their best practices compliance program, which are often cutting edge because they want to try to get as much credit as possible. And the DOJ takes that information and incorporates the, into their uh, decision-making calculus for what's the best practices compliance program. So what was cutting edge becomes best practices and then sort of devolves down to standard practice. So I thought that part was interesting. The second part was um, a uh, uh, kind of quote from Nicole Spritzen, vice chairman of White Collar Defense and Investigations at Cozen O'Connor, who said on a webinar that she believed the um, – 2020 update focused more on the requirements of middle management as opposed to top management. And that the reason for this increased focus was in the original, uh, I guess, of the original uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs issued in February 2017 and updated uh, later um, or uh, last year in 2019, there was a clear focus on the requirements of tone from the top and senior management. But here that tone was moved into the middle. And that absolutely uh, corresponds to what you and I have been talking about for multiple years. And it really is the mood in the middle. And it's for a couple of reasons. Number one, middle management are in large part who who are everyone's bosses. You and I both work for large multinational companies. Uh, I never met the CEO of, of Halliburton. And uh, I don't know, you were at Warner, right? Uh, I was at 20th Century Fox and Warner's, yeah. 20th Century Fox, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you ever met the CEO, but you certainly met your direct supervisor. And in many ways, he's your boss. And also, when it comes to uh, whistleblowing or reporting, many people want to go in their boss's office and communicate. Hey, I saw this. Hey, I had a question about this. Uh, they want to speak up in that manner. And middle management are the ones who largely are your intake resource. So uh, it's important to, uh, to train middle management not only to push the tone down, but to take information up from lower level employees. So I thought it was a prescient uh, observation. I was also uh, intrigued with Sally Malloy's comments on how best practices evolved as well. So an interesting article. Um, and like I said, some, some folks we typically don't hear from in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. So uh, next up, how badly did EY botch the Wirecard audit? Michael Rappaport, guest post on Francine McKenna's The Dig. So this is a guest newsletter from Michael Rappaport. German payments processing company Wirecard has unraveled, and its auditors at Ernst & Young's German firm face scrutiny about whether they fumbled their work and failed to catch and stop a major fraud. So if you're an investor, you likely won't be enthused to find out that EY Germany worked on your company's audit. But that's exactly what's happening at some major behemoths, McDonald's, Expedia, Texas Instruments, Archer, Daniels, Midland, and other high-profile U.S. companies. And most of their shareholders don't have a clue about it. Ernst & Young's German member, the firm that blessed Wirecard's financial statements for years before the company fessed up that billions of dollars of cash didn't exist, helped out with the annual audits of at least 30 U.S. companies in the past year. That doesn't mean any of these companies necessarily have anything wrong with their accounting, 
but it does mean that the numbers are being vetted in part by an auditor that faces serious questions about their integrity. Generally, these companies are U.S.-based multinationals for which EY's U.S. firm serves as a primary auditor. On Expedia, for instance, EY Germany did about 20 to 30 percent of the work. On Archer Daniel Midlands, which has more than $2 billion in yearly revenue in Germany, EY Germany did 10 to 20 percent. In a statement, EY said it had a strong system of quality controls that enable each member firm to provide high-quality audits. Regulators are investigating EY Germany's work for Wirecard, and German stakeholders group SDK has filed complaints against EY. EY Germany signed off on the accuracy of Wirecard's financial statements every year since 2009 before finally refusing to do so last year in 2019. The Wall Street Journal reported that EY did have questions as far back as 2016 about Wirecard's unusual arrangements, and EY Germany claims that the client misled them all along. To be sure, this kind of help on U.S. multinational audits that EY Germany provides to EY U.S. is not unusual. It's been going on for years, though it's only been since 2017 that firms have had to disclose. Previously, it's been an issue with United Kingdom audit firms after they came under fire for missing a slew of accounting scandals at companies like Carillion. And Chinese audit firms work on U.S. multinationals as well. The information about other audit firms helping out on a company's primary audit is publicly available, but it's not at SEC filings that many investors look at. It's only available on special filings which accountant firms make with the PCAOB. Investors can look up through this link that we have in our show notes for auditor search database on the PCAOB's website. You may want to do this for any companies whose shares you hold least the kind of unpleasant surprise that's land Wirecard shareholders hits you next. So, Jay, uh, were you ready for CCPA? CCPA? Is that kind of like, um, oh, what was that thing uh, at the turn of the century when all the computers were going to stop? What was it, Y2K? Y2K. Well, unlike Y2K, CCPA actually happened, and it happened on July 1. So uh, we had a really interesting article from um, Jessica Wilburn over at the NAVX Global Risk and Compliance Matters blog. And um, the uh, she really just reviewed the CCPA, reviewed who it covers, uh, those uh, companies who buy, sell, or receive personal information of at least 50,000 California residents. Uh, derive 50% of their annual revenue from the selling of personal information in California of California residents or have an annual gross uh, re- revenue of over uh, $25 million, I should say, and not or. Um, but uh, I thought the most uh, prescient part, Jay, was where uh, she said that uh, the regulators uh, in California really want to see you moving uh, down the road and moving in the right direction. And so they have uh, indicated that uh, they want to see companies uh, not only uh, implementing compliance around CCPA, but also the next set of regulations, which uh, were released in in March. So uh, CCPA is live. It is finally here. Uh, Every company needs to be aware of this. 
Uh, it is the leading uh, data protection law in the United States. Obviously, GDPR, much more robust and comprehensive, but the current administration would never actually pass anything that would uh, help the businesses in the United States uh, do this more efficiently. So and they, the Republicans have recently blocked yet another attempt to have a nationwide data protection law. So uh, I think everyone needs to be aware of the CCPA, even if it doesn't uh, cover your corporation, because I think it's going to come to a state near you soon. So closing off our articles for this week, uh, something from one of our favorite blogs, Corporate Compliance Insights. This comes to us uh, from a, a new voice. Her name is Neda Medev, and she talks about the future of work, vital lessons in compliance and litigation. As the situation with COVID-19 evolves, a huge oncoming wave of lawsuits is imminent, and legal and compliance issues could cause yet another crisis if not addressed properly. In recent years, we've seen an unprecedented rise in the number of high-profile employee complaints directed at employers through external channels such as social media. The public challenges have been launched under the banners of movements such as Me Too and recently in the news Black Lives Matters by employers increasingly disillusioned by their organization's internal shortcomings and internal reporting channels have become apparent. Now, as the situation with COVID-19 and Black Lives Matters protests evolves, we expect to see a huge wave of lawsuits resulting from workers focused on legal and compliance issues rooted in organizations' failures to keep the workforce physically and psychologically safe. The ag aggregated impact of lockdown, business closures, widespread unemployment, and job insecurity has resulted in significant shift in how employers view work and what's important to them. For a vast majority of businesses that don't rely on workers being on location, COVID-19 has forced them to shift to online models, and many businesses will look to keep remote working in their future. This shift to remote working will present different challenges, not least because the employer's physical workspace is changing. It's ethically incumbent on businesses to ensure employees' home workspace is secure and safe as their actual physical workplace but on top of this, they also need to consider the emotional and mental well-being of their employees as they face isolation in the long term. Research over the last year has found that bullying and discrimination were reported in most prominent types of misconduct in the workplace, 70% and 54% effectively, respectively rather. Businesses can seem to understand the requirements of the challenge, Research has also found that 68% of key stakeholders in human resources, legal, and compliance say the best way to tackle workforce misconduct is through a speak-up culture. Unfortunately, there remains a disconnect between the words and actions. Businesses say they're addressing the issue, but employees aren't seeing action. It is essential to safeguard the future of work and whatever form it may take that employers implement easily accessible internal Hello, speak everyone. up this tools is Tom Fox again. to create a like safe and secure way for employees to voice their concerns and have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com.
They want to see action change. Really cool By creating a robust compliance network website, you can leave a voicemail staff or a message. If companies like need to direct employees to have internally available like resources and I hope join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the resources top compliance and ethics stories for the week moment that in our is history. to become. With companies experiencing backlash for production of the compliance podcast network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. And now Thanks again for listening and we look forward to visiting with protest. you again. Businesses are being held to account more than ever. We've had a glimpse of what can be achieved under a global movement with Me Too and if companies do not have adequate mechanisms to respond to and resolve challenges internally, employees will continue to seek out external resources to ensure that their voices are heard. So, Jay, on the Compliance Podcast Network, we had a week or our three uh, podcast trilogy on compliance and coronavirus, where this week I was joined by Ryan Schoenfeld to discuss IT and physical security in the era of coronavirus. Cindy Flynn talked about employment issues on reopening. She's a California employment lawyer. And then Bill Sanders actually had a trilogy of Californians now that I look at it. So you're in good company this weekend. Um, Bill Sanders talked about business change. Uh, he's a business change consultant uh, in the area of COVID-19. So I thought uh, really some interesting podcasts this week. Um, on the 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, we had uh, three days uh, concluding June, or two days, I should say. And on Monday, I looked at the parameters of the attorney-client privilege. On Tuesday, I asked where Miranda warnings now needed in internal investigations. And on uh, Wednesday, July 1st, we began a new month where the new topic for July is third-party risk management. Uh, for our listeners, this podcast this month and next is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. So tip of the hat to Affiliated Monitors for sponsoring 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. On Wednesday, I looked at uh, an introduction into the third-party risk management process. And on Thursday, um, the business rationale. Please note that there will be no podcast on July 3rd uh, for the national holiday, but we'll start up again uh, next Monday. So uh, check out these podcasts. They're both available on iTunes, on the Compliance Podcast Network, and uh, the FCPA Compliance Report. Any last thoughts, Jay? Well, we've got half a year in the bag for uh, FCPA and ethics and compliance stories. Uh, I have a feeling that there will probably be an everything compliance uh, gathering of the commentators, but anything that really shocked you or put you for a spin besides this week's uh, activities with Novartis? Uh, you mean in 2020, the strangest year in my lifetime since 1968 or just regular FCPA stuff? I'll let you do either. <laughs> well, or both. thank God this year is half over. Uh, it's not going to end too quickly. Probably the best commentary I've seen is uh, forever invented the phrase hindsight is best seen in 2020. Uh, <laughs> I think that, and uh, it just doesn't really seem any longer appropriate. All right. Well, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 212, episode 212, for the week ending July 3rd, the happy 4th of July edition. Um, 
Uh, I'm not sure how celebratory we are all feeling as a company, as a country, but uh, we should take this time to think about what's important. And that, unlike certain political people say, is wearing a mask. So first of all, shelter in place. But if you need to go out, show the common courtesy and respect for your fellow Americans and wear a mask. Thank you for being with us and spending some of your time. Uh, We hope that you will be safe and well, and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message if you'd like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.